Today we are talking about law and faith in our faith series. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, as we look at the law and faith. Doesn't sound like a very exciting message. Anytime we talk about the law, usually people are like, yeah, I don't want to talk about the law. But this has great bearing on us as believers today. But I want to give this preface, and that is this. Because Mark 10, 1 through 12, is a very popular passage of Scripture whenever we have conversations in the Christian community about the subject of divorce. It's, it's, it's actually regarded as one of the divorce passages where Jesus talks about divorce. But full disclosure... Today's message is not about divorce. So if you've been looking at the teaching and preaching schedule, you've been going, all right. They're going to talk about divorce next week. Uh, it, it is the subject of what Jesus is talking about, when it, but when it fits into the larger context of Mark's gospel, um, we would be amiss if we were to just laser focus on the subject of divorce today. I'm not doing that. Because I don't think that's what Mark's gospel does. However, we learn a lot from this passage in regards to what Jesus has to say and what the Father has to say about divorce. And so as you think about your worldview and how as a Christian your worldview when it comes to the subject of marriage and divorce should look differently than the world's, this is a really good passage to to form your worldview and how you think about divorce. It, it just is. And we're going to notice that as we go through it. But today's message is not a topical message about divorce. It's about the faith and the law. The Christian faith and the law of God. The conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees happens to center around the subject of divorce. But it's much bigger than that subject. Now this is because the subject of divorce as mentioned in the Old Testament law and as practiced in first century Judea had become quite nuanced. It was therefore the perfect subject of discussion for the Pharisees who wanted to test Jesus, trip him up, get him in trouble. They purposely, in this passage, want to endanger Jesus and endanger his disciples and bring harm upon this new movement, later to be called the way. The Pharisees intended, with this sinister plan, to discredit the disciples, to discredit Jesus, and to bring harm to Jesus and his mission. That was their intention. And let's not forget that this plan was hatched by some of the most religious people in the land. The Pharisees, the experts of the law. So take your Bible there, open it up. Mark 10, 1 through 12. The Bible says, And rising up he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according, according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. 
And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Father, would you bless not only the reading of your word, but our meditation upon it today. And Father, that you would give your word success in our hearts and our minds, and most of all, that our hands and feet would begin to move in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name. Now I say that this passage or that this sermon today is not about divorce. It seems that this passage is very much about divorce. But this is why we don't read passages of scripture out of context. It's really easy to do that, isn't it? To kind of lift something out and just kind of focus on it. Now I do want to say because we would also be remiss as we're preaching through and learning through the gospel of Mark not to mention some things about divorce and remarriage that we believe. Okay? But the heart of this message is what we're going to get to later on. And that is the relationship between the law of God and the Christian faith. What it means to live by faith in Christ alone. But I want to point out that the problem in first century Judea is not much unlike the problem that we have today in 21st century Western world, the United States. Not only are divorce rates high in the United States, they're high all around the world. As a matter of fact, Russia has twice the divorce rate that we do in the United States. You might not have known that. I didn't know that. There are other countries across the world. I assumed that maybe the United States was at the very top of the list, but we're just kind of right in the middle. Higher than some countries, lower than others. And of course, the laws of the land surrounding the issues of marriage and divorce have something to do with that. But in first century Judea, what's clear, because of what Malachi, the, 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 the last prophet in the Old Testament, said about the state of Israel, not only Israel, but the leaders in Israel, they were given to divorce and remarriage. They were putting their wives, the, the wife of their youth, as the Old Testament would call it, you, you dealt treacherously, God's judgment is upon you because you have dealt treacherously, is the word, with the wife of your youth. You've treated her like someone to be, or something to just be discarded. And you've gone after other women or another woman. And even the leaders in Israel were doing this. And God says, I don't want you to do that. Stop doing that. I hate divorce, the Lord says. 
So it was a problem then, even before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It has become a major problem. And so the, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about this subject in order to entrap him. Why? Because he's surrounded by crowds. I want to make sure you say something that the crowd likes, not something that they dislike. In 2023, just this year, Forbes published some numbers. The majority of divorces are initiated by only one party. Most divorces in the U.S. are initiated by one party, with only 27% of respondents indicating the decision to end the marriage was mutual. So more than not, it's a one-sided move. Most divorces also, they say, happen between year three and year seven of marriage. Not all, but most of them, the vast majority. Just 4% of couples divorce after 10 years of marriage. Just 4%. Most divorced people, that is 92%, know other people who have been divorced. I can remember just in my lifetime when I was a kid, if, if we were to poll the kids in my, let's say, my, my first grade classroom, how many of my classmates had parents who were no longer together, there may have been a couple, one or two. Now, in our land, during our time, it's the opposite. If we were to take a poll of first graders in this school, down the hallway, how many of your parents are divorced? There might be maybe one or two or three kids whose parents were still together. And when you get into the high school ages, it's even more so the case. And so I don't have to tell you who are teachers in the room how difficult it is to discipline and teach children whose parents have called it quits by the time the kids were 13, 14 years old. It's a hard time to have stability in the home. And so the home has ripple effects for everything else in society. It did then, it does now. 63% of divorcees believe a better understanding of the commitments of marriage beforehand could have helped them to avoid divorce. Did you hear that, church? Huge implications for us to talk about this, to talk about marriage, to talk to our young people about marriage. The top reason for new couples to divorce, this study says, is the lack of compatibility. And so you have these dating websites that will say, we're going to do a, a diagnostic on this person, person A, and then person B, and see if they're compatible, and then even give you a report that says, hey, it shows that you are 90% compatible with this person. Ooh, that's pretty high. I think I'll go with that, you know? It's like compatibility. Most people say, the majority of couples who divorced in their first year said, we just weren't compatible. That's what we discovered in our first year of marriage. We weren't compatible. So what have young people started doing today? They started cohabitating. Cohabiting with one another. Right? Let's find out if we're compatible before we make this legal. Because when we make it legal, we don't want egg on our face later on. That's what a lot of young people are doing. And they have been doing it for years. It's no, it's no surprise to us. But it's getting more and more the case. And what's even adding to cohabitation issues here in our area is that our economy and inflation have made it so difficult for single people to live on their own, to afford an, even an efficiency apartment. They are cohabiting with their non-married other significant partner. No-fault divorce 
has made it even easier for couples to divorce. You may be in a relationship that's abusive and file for divorce on legal terms, but what most people are doing is because it's easier to do a no-fault divorce and cite irreconcilable differences, they're doing that so that both parties can agree to dissolve the marriage. Bottom line is this. First century Judea, in first century Judea, divorce was easy. Today, divorce is easy. Divorce is easy to think about. It was easy for them back then, mainly on one side. It was easy for a man to divorce his wife. You could divorce your wife. The people, the Pharisees are talking about this, they know the law. And the, and the men in society who would have been part of that crowd, hearing Jesus, they knew the law and they knew what they could do. And many of them had been divorced. They had divorced their wives for things like burning the toast. You could do that. If their wife showed their ankle in public, they could legally divorce her on those grounds. So women were in a situation where they were very unprotected by society as a human being. And so divorce was easy, really easy for men. You could put away your wife for pretty much anything. And today, it, you could say it's the same, but today it's not just easy for men to divorce their wives. It's super easy for wives to divorce their husbands see it all the time. And don't get me wrong, there are many instances in divorce where it is legally a right thing to divorce someone. Jesus gives an exception in Matthew chapter 5. It's unlawful to divorce except for reasons of infidelity. There is an exception clause there because he says with the exception, we didn't make that up, it's there in scripture. But divorce is not only easy for men today, it's also easy for women who will cite things like, well, he was verbally abusive. Maybe. But that's a slippery slope. Incompatible with each other. Irreconcilable differences. We can make divorce easy today on both sides, just like they did back then. And so, Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, talks about Divorce and way God thinks about divorce for his people is very clear. That doesn't change when we come to Mark chapter 10. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 gives us an Old Testament context for divorce. And then when we look at the text of the, the, in the New Testament, letters written by Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, Paul explains that the Christian husband should not leave his non-believing wife. He talks about if you're a believing woman and you're married to an unbelieving man, or if you're a believing man and you're married to an unbelieving wife, he gives us instructions on how to think about that, that relationship. Because that's hard, isn't it? When you become a Christian, your spouse isn't one. Amen? You have different values. Things change, but Paul says that a Christian husband should not leave his non-believing wife just because she's not a believer. That he should live in peace with her. Likewise, a believing wife should not leave her unbelieving husband, but live with him in peace. This is especially true, he says, when children are involved. But if the unbelieving spouse, if they decide to leave the marriage, Paul says, don't try to force them to stay because you can't change them. Only God can change them. What you should do is pursue peace. Let them go peacefully. 
Many of us struggle with this in the Christian faith. What, what do we do when our non-believing spouse seems to not want to be a part of this? Do we push them away? Do we struggle to, to keep the marriage together? What do we do? We want a black and white answer to all of these tough questions, but that's not what Jesus gives us in some ways in chapter 10. He doesn't give them what they want. In 1 Timothy and Titus, the marriage relationship had ramifications for the qualifications of church leadership. It is a fine assignment. It is a, it is a great thing that any man in the church desire the office of overseer for elder. But let him have these characteristics, and one of those characteristics is the husband of one wife. Not someone who casts his wife aside. Not someone who is abusive to his wife or his children. Not someone who's a brawler or argumentative. These are among some of the qualifications that we find there for church leadership. And if we're going to have leaders that are qualified, we need to have a culture that has a biblical worldview when it comes to marriage and divorce. But I want to go back to the text because I want you to see on the subject of the law and faith, verses 1 through 4, I want you to see what happens. Jesus leaves. He's on his way now to Jerusalem. Remember, he spent a time staying away from the crowds, away from the city, so he could spend time with his disciples to teach them and to prepare him, to prepare them. Now, he leaves and he is on his way. And he goes, the Bible says here in verse 1, to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Crowds were gathering, the Bible says. The Pharisees came up to him, testing him, began to question him. And I want you to notice this word in verse 2. Questioning him whether it was what, does your Bible say? Lawful. Whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. That's their focus. Their focus is on what is a man allowed to do? What is a man permitted to do? And so Jesus answers their question. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? You're the experts. You're the Pharisees. You know the word. What does Moses command you? Oh, they loved this. This was a softball. Jesus just lobbed this one over the plate. And what do they do? They say in verse 4, Oh, we're ready for this. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Drop the mic, it's over. It's over. This is where Jesus wanted them to go. Their question was about what is lawful. Now, why do they ask this question? In Mark chapter 6, remember, we learned this several months ago, when we came across this peculiarly placed passage about John the Baptist. Do you remember that? It seemed as though as we were going through Mark chapter 6, we come to this place about John the Baptist. Like, Why is this there? Why does he insert this part about John the Baptist and then picks up with the rest of the story? Well, if you'll remember, the story about John the Baptist, John the Baptist is beheaded. He's beheaded by Herod Antipas. In Mark chapter 6, verse 18, this is what got John the Baptist in trouble. Mark 6, 18. 
John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's what got John in trouble. That's what got John beheaded. He said to the governor, you can't do that. Some scholars say that this region that Jesus and his disciples were in here in Mark 10 may have been the same one where Herod Antipas would have thrown his party mentioned in Mark 6. The very party that got John beheaded. Now the Herod family, we learn of many different Herods in the New Testament when we look at the book of Acts. The Herod family was made up of several, several Roman rulers who served as governors in Palestine during the New Testament times. If you remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a King Herod. History refers to him as Herod the Great. And he was the governor there during the Roman reign of Caesar Augustus. And Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, had a brother named Philip. Philip had a wife named Herodias. And Herod Antipas took Philip's wife away from him. And she became Herod Antipas's wife. And John said to Herod Antipas, You're not allowed to do that. That is not lawful. And remember, he's talking to a governor. <laughs> Governors dictate what the law is, right? And so Herod Antipas probably thought, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what tradition is here in this region. I'll do what I want. John said, you can't do what you want. Even if the culture says you can. Even if the culture says it's easy. Even if the culture says everybody's doing it. Even if the culture says you can find, we can make a, a list of 20 reasons why... It, you're excused for making this decision. This may have been the same region. If it were the same region where John was beheaded, then it would make sense that the Pharisees wanted at this time, in this place, to get Jesus to say something that's going to get him in trouble. We've already seen John beheaded. Maybe if Jesus says something stupid, Herod will get wind of it, and we can get Jesus' head on a platter too. Maybe that's the situation. But if this were the same territory, Jesus and his, and his disciples may have become especially threatened by this particular question about divorce. Now, here's the point. People of faith don't nitpick and try to pull things out of Scripture or try to, try to justify their actions with little proof texts. People of faith focus on what's best not just on what's allowed. When I was a youth minister, youth all the time would ask, how far is too far with my girlfriend? With my boyfriend? And I would say to them, you've already gone there. Because you're thinking it. You're going through it in your mind. You're already there. You've already gone too far if you ask that question. But this is how many times we're, we're tempted to think about God's law and about God's word. We want to know what it says in one corner so that we can use that instead of looking at the entire story, which we'll get to in a minute. 
The people of faith focus on what's best. We're not focused on what's allowable, what's permissible. We don't ask questions like that. Is it lawful? Is it okay? Why? Because we want to glorify Jesus in everything that we do. Right? You have been bought with a price. So don't go through God's word trying to find this and that. Don't look for what's permissible. Look for what brings God glory. The most glory. You've died to yourself. Pursue holiness. Pursue excellence. That word permitted there in our text. In verse 4, they said Moses permitted a man. That word permitted is the Greek word epitrepo. And it means not just per, is it allowable as an idea, but is it, have we been given authority to do that? That word epitrepo comes from that word, from the word of being given authority. So when Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They said, he gave us authority. He allowed us to do this. Now what does Jesus do in verse 4? Or verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. See, they weren't, they weren't focused on their heart condition. They weren't focused on the motivation. They were, just, they were just motivated on, can we get away with this? Can we do this? Is this allowable? Is this permissible? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, when he talks about his liberty as a Christian, he says, listen, all things are lawful, all things are permissible for me as a Christian, living in liberty. Now he was talking about in the context of food that you can eat. What kind of food can we eat? He's like, you can eat anything. As long as your conscience supports it, eat whatever you want. But then he says this, well, yeah, of course, all things are lawful for me. I'm permitted to do anything from the Lord. He says, but not all things are what? Profitable. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. This is the attitude that we're to have as Christians, people of faith. We don't focus on what's allowed, we focus on what's best. What's best and what glorifies God the most. The second thing is this people of faith try to see the big picture. We want to see the big picture. The Pharisees didn't care about the big picture. They were using God's word and God's law to justify their life and their actions that really wasn't being lived in accordance with the spirit of God's law. They used it as a tool, right? People of faith don't do that. People of faith don't cherry pick the scriptures for their own personal agenda. Satan did that. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Luke 4 tells us, the enemy came to Jesus and he tempted him. And what did he tempt him with? Scripture. Doesn't the scripture say X, Y, and Z? Got my proof text. Says right here. How did Jesus defeat that mindset? With the entire witness of scripture. See, Jesus brought all of God's word to bear. And this is what we must do as Christians. 
This is what we must do. And this is how you can tell uh, if, if, if you're a mature Christian, if you're a maturing Christian, and that is this. Not only your posture toward God's word. How do you, is it a tool for your own agenda? Or have you laid your life bare to it? To say whatever God says, from Genesis to Revelation, it all has to change my life. That's the mark of a maturing believer, of a person of faith. The mark of an of a immature believer is one that says, I'm going to use this so I can figure out how to live my life. And I want to live my life for Jesus, but I'm going to use the Bible and I'm going to partner God's Word with my will. It has to be His will. It can't be our will. We have to want to see the big picture. We have to want to come to a text like first, first, or uh, Mark uh, 10, 1 through 12, and say, I read it, I see it. Is there more that God's word says about divorce and remarriage? I want to know that. I want to see what God's word says everywhere. The Pharisees didn't care. Well, Moses permitted, and so what does Jesus do? He takes them back. He says, Moses said this because, number five, uh, verse five, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. But, verse six, that is a small hinge that heavy doors will swing on when Jesus talks. But, verse six, from the beginning of creation. See, Jesus says the same thing with the Pharisees that he did with Satan in the wilderness. But the word also says, let's take a, a, a fuller look at God's word. It also says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There were two human beings in the garden. One man, one woman. In relationship with one another for the glory of God. There was no one to cheat on her with. To cheat on him with. There was no one to divorce. There was no one to remarry. And then he says in verse 7, For this cause, this reason... For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. It's so key there in verse 7. This is, you are following the example of those who came before you. Look, and this is why it's so difficult today, because when we talk about marriage with young people, so many young people in our society today don't have a model to look at. A real life model. That's why we need each other in the church community. That's why we need to live and breathe with one another in a church community. I need godly men and women who've been married for 50, 60 years to show me what it means to be a faithful spouse. Do you know how rare 50 year anniversaries, wedding anniversaries are going to are becoming in our culture. They are so rare. We need... He, he says here in verse 7, it's for this reason, for this cause, a man shall leave who? Who's he leaving? His father and his mother. That is a model to follow. Be a wife of one husband. Be a husband of one wife. There's a thing called canon sense. Canon sense. When we talk about the entire Bible, we're talking about the canon of Scripture. All 66 books is called the biblical canon. 
and I can live in such a way that I take little pieces of the word with me and I proof text and I justify things in my life. But if you have a good canon sense, that is you're learning God's word from cover to cover, and you have that big picture view of God's word, he will do a, a, a fuller work in you. And you'll have a better understanding of his will for your life. People of faith don't cherry pick. They try to see the big picture. Try to see the big picture. These were legalists, these Pharisees, who proof texted their views. And the Pharisees had an agenda they used the scripture to support it. But people of faith submit all agendas to the authority of Christ and his word. The word of God becomes less of a tool for living my life and it becomes more of my very life. As we mature and grow as Christians, the Bible must take on this form. It's not a place that we go to in order to try and justify our actions. It's the spiritual food that we eat. It's the spiritual water that we drink so that our lives are aligned with our Savior and King, Jesus. And so are you seeking the big picture? Are you in God's Word? Reading God's Word? All of God's Word? I like concordances. Sometimes you have a concordance at the front or back of your Bible, and you can look up words. And you go, oh, where does, where does the Bible mention money? Or debt? Or Something like, I can go to my concordance and find the word and go, oh, there it goes. Or a topical Bible. And it's very helpful when you're looking for something, but it's no way. It's, it, that's not the kind of diet of God's word that you want. Googling things. Oh, that's what the Bible says about this or that. We have these tools to make it easy, but we want a canon sense of God's word. We want to know the full counsel of God and gain a big picture of his holy word. That's what people of faith do that's what we strive to do. And then finally, in closing, people of faith pursue truth no matter the cost. After Jesus has told the Pharisees, because remember, everything that he says here in verse 3 through 9 is to the Pharisees. There were crowd gathered around. People could hear what he said. Now, what were the Pharisees wanting? They were wanting to entrap Jesus. All the other gospel accounts say the same thing as Mark in that they all knew what the Pharisees were going after. If Jesus were to say, they, they knew that Jesus wanted to say divorce is something God hates. Okay? However, because of the place they were in, that would have been a risky thing to say because of what Herod had already done to John the Baptist. It would have been a terrible thing for Jesus to do, strategy-wise, if what he was trying to do was to, was to gather a big mass of people. To rah-rah Jesus, we love you. You're the greatest. If he was trying to be a social media influencer, his influence would have died when he said this. And the Pharisees knew it. He either puts himself in physical harm or he loses... A potential following. They didn't care. Either way. We want him either to fail. Or we want him to die. 
And so when he says this, the Bible says in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples begin questioning him about this again. Now I want you, don't, don't let this escape your notice. This is really important. Jesus said something in front of the Pharisees and in this crowd that would have potentially put a huge bullseye on his back and anybody following him. Where do we find the disciples? When Jesus goes into the house, where do they go? Into the house. Because they're followers of Jesus. They go into the house with him. And they ask him, come again? What did you say back there? What, what, what did you mean by that? And Jesus, not afraid, the disciples, not afraid, they pursue the truth, no matter the cost, they go into the house, and Jesus doubles down. In verse 11, he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. I don't think Jesus is just speaking generally here. I think that because of what happened to John the Baptist and because the Pharisees are coming back to Jesus and because of the place and the situation, notice the first time in verse 9, when Jesus tells the Pharisees, therefore what God has joined together, going back to what is permissible, going back to the idea, epitrepo, of authority, Jesus says, hear me, no one on this earth, governor, government, man, woman, no one has the power to usurp authority from the Creator who designed marriage this way. What God has joined together, he says in verse 9, let no man separate. I think he's particularly talking about those in power who think they can do whatever they want and are setting the example for everybody else in the land. No one has the authority to tear apart what God has separated. Again, the disciples come into the house. Verse 11 he uses this word, whoever, whoever divorces his wife. And if she divorces her husband, Jesus is focusing not so much on the subject of divorce as he, and, and giving them little tidbits so they know, okay, we can do this, we can't do this, we can do this, this is allowable, this is permissible. He's not going to let them do this. He gives this overarching idea of authority. And he says, marriage is an institution created by the Father. The Old Testament tells us he hates it. He allowed it with his people in Israel. He gave them things that protect individuals who are involved in divorce, but he hates it. And my goodness, if you want to follow somebody example for godly living, don't follow Israel's in the Old Testament when God gives them the ability to divorce legally. Aim higher than that. So much higher. Pursue better. People of faith, that's what we do. We don't look for what's permissible, what's allowed. We don't 
nitpick the word of God. We look for the big picture and we pursue truth no matter the cost. The Pharisees seem to have placed Jesus in a very difficult and dangerous situation here. But he doesn't take the bait. He says, this is the truth. This is a difficult thing to talk about. Now, mind you, Jesus would have had a different type of conversation with someone who came to him and said, I'm, I'm having a rough time in my marriage. He's talking to Pharisees who are looking for this and that and they're wanting to corner him. And he's not going to play their game. He wants them to become people of faith. He models that for his disciples. He wants his disciples to not operate the way that the Pharisees operated. And he wants us today to live and operate in the same way. To live by faith. Today's message has not been an exhaustive treatment of divorce or remarriage. It wasn't intended to be. I want you to see what Jesus is saying here in this situation. And what it means to be people of faith. To want more of Christ. Do you want more of Christ? Do you want more of Christ in your relationships? Do you want to be the person, if you're married, in your marriage that God wants you to be? Fully submitted to Him and submitted to your partner for life? That's God's will for you. That's God's design for you in your marriage. You may be here this morning and you're married to a non-believer. God knows the situation that you're in. He knows the pain that you're in. He loves you. And if, and if you're, looking, you're looking for things in the Word that give you a reason to do X or Y or Z, you may not be able to find it. You may not be able to find it to, to your satisfaction, but know this. Know this, that God has you where He wants you to be to serve that other person, to love that other person as, as long as it's in your power to do so. And you can't control them. You can't control them. But you can be a person of faith. You can live by faith. And we do that together as a church family.